competent as a leader is your people looking at you and going, have you got what it takes to lead us from where we are now to where we need to be? I think what a lot of people are brought up to think is that that means you have to have all of the answers. But actually, our people, I believe, our followers, if you like, our constituents, are much more likely to think we have got what it takes to lead us from where we are now to where we need to be. If we are willing to say, hey, I'm really good at this, I'm crystal clear on that, and actually I don't have all the answers to all of these things, but I'd like to know if you have and have we got all of the answers. Can we create anything we don't know together? Hi there, this is Ben and you're listening to the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's totally free. I am incredibly excited about today's episode, which is with my good friend, my former colleague and culture expert, Richard Nugent. It's an episode that pulls no punches, which is also the case with his new book, The Alignment Advantage. Now, we all know that strategy, culture and customers are the key elements of any business. And those of us in senior leadership positions would like to think, I'm sure, that those of us in those leadership positions have a shared and common understanding of what these important words mean. But it turns out, that in most organisations, that's simply not the case. Now, that may or may not surprise you, but one of Richard's key findings is sure to make you stop what you're doing and pay attention. Studies show that organisations which are highly aligned are 72% more profitable than their competition. The alignment advantage shows how you can achieve this through a practical and proven framework which can be adapted to all businesses, whether it's a small startup, multinational organisation or somewhere in between. Before we get into this episode though, do head over to the online courses page of my website ben-morton.com or check it out via the show notes where you can sign up for my 10 for 10 leadership course. It's totally free. It's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I get asked about. It also gets consistently great feedback. But now, and without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode, which I know you're absolutely going to love and get huge value from. Here is Richard Nugent. Richard, very warm welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us today. How are you? I am brilliant. I'm delighted to be here. And I was reflecting this morning on uh, not just what a pleasure it is to be on, on this podcast, but also to have met you and worked with you and have your friendship. So I'm, I'm really grateful to be here and uh, re- really grateful to spend the time with you that I do. Uh, it's very kind. And I'm almost going to dismiss it by diving straight into the questions. <laughs> So no you have got a, another new book coming out, The Alignment Advantage, which should um, hit the shelves about the same time that this episode goes out. So can you start, Richard, by describing, I guess, the, the premise of the book and the, the origin story that led you to write it? Yeah, this is uh, the, the methodology behind it, what we call the Align methodology, something that's emerged over the past probably has its orange about, uh, origins about seven years ago, but in particular the last five years, where I haven't done a lot of work on culture and culture change and how you make culture change stick, and then increasingly got interested in strategy, we started to explore the connections between them. And um, what we found was that almost nobody talks about culture and strategy together. And on top of that, then, almost nobody talks about culture and customer experience or guest experience and client experience together. And what really emerged was the advantage that comes from aligning those three things, the disadvantage that comes from not, you know, the missed opportunity that organizations have when they put strategy and culture at odds with each other, for example. And there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of 
writing and thinking that they don't that automatically puts those things at odds with each other like strategies the hard commercial stuff and cultures the nice fluffy fluffy people stuff or or, or the alternative way around you know that organizations should be driven primarily by their purpose and it's all about culture and it's all about being a great place to work and that somehow having a good strategy is a um you know a, almost like a bit of a dirty word or a secondary thing so yeah, so that was the the thinking behind it. And over the years, we've asked a whole lot of organisations questions to help them to see how aligned they are or aren't across strategy, culture, and experience. And then you know help them to discover how to build their strategy, develop their culture, and to ensure that they're aligned in the experiences they're looking to create for their customers, guests, clients. So that was the bit I found really interesting when we we spoke previously. And if I heard you right, did you say that? over the past five years you've been asking leadership teams executive teams a standard set of six questions and around is it 97 percent of those teams have different understandings and different definitions of some kind of keywords that we all use frequently in business is that right yeah and I'm, I'm, i know i'm going to repeat back pretty much what you said but it's so first of all it's so fascinating to me and with the clients we do this with but, but quite shocking actually for lots of people We've asked hundreds of clients over the past five years now six questions about how aligned they are strategically, culturally, and experience. Actually, I, I typically talk about it between kind of three to five percent, but I reviewed all of the figures in the lead up to this conversation, and there is just either side of one percent of teams that we've asked these questions to give the same answers as each other around the table. So in around 99% of the teams that we've worked with, they don't have a shared aligned understanding in what they mean by strategy, what the kind of strategy they're pursuing is. When they talk about culture, they aren't necessarily talking about the same thing. And even in some of the most customer-facing organizations you can imagine, we get senior teams together and we ask them, you know, what is the experience that you're looking to create for your customers, your guests, your visitors? And those people around the table have different answers to each other. So it's almost unbelievable. And the interesting thing is many teams are convinced that they are going to give the same answers to each other. And it's a real moment of insight, the fact that they're not all shooting for the same things. Wow. So this is the very obvious question then. Like, What impact does that have on organisations? Well, we would, I was working with a, a group yesterday and we ended up talking about organisational silos a lot. Uh, and one example, just, just from the conversation yesterday, is that I think most of us who work in the field, work in leadership, work in culture, assume that organizational silos are typically a cultural thing. You know, we don't work together enough or our relationships aren't strong enough or we haven't explored the degree of shared values that we have or something like that. And all of that's true and it's possible. But actually, I think a lot of organizational silos come from a strategic issue. So if we're all focusing on a different strategic goal and we're all, we all think that we're shooting for the same strategic goal, then people are, are heading off and working in different directions or in a lot of cases, they, they are fighting against each other. So, so one of the really memorable moments for me in, in doing this work, it wasn't with a huge organization, it was with a, like a hundred million uh, turnover IT business, but they're overall kind of key strategic objective was that they were growing, going to grow from 100 million to 300 million. They just had a chunk of investment. And we'd initially been brought into the conversation because they had two sales divisions that were effectively managing to sell against each other. Right. And I asked these six questions and as we, uh, of the senior team, which was seven people, and as we fed back the answers and we reflected together on the answers, to be fair, they had a pretty shared definition about what strategy is and what strategy is, and they had fairly shared and line definitions about what strategy is. But when I asked them what their key strategic objective was, and bear in mind this is the senior team of seven people, they gave me six different answers. Wow. And I said, look, it, you don't need me to point out, but the, but the downstream, downstream problem of these sales teams selling against each other is probably much less about the fact they don't like each other or their two bosses aren't very well developed or whatever it is, and much more about a misunderstanding and a misalignment of the strategic goals that they're aiming for. Because, of course, if you're 
if your strategy's out at the very top end, then things like your, you know, your your KPIs and things are naturally going to not be aligned in how they contribute to the delivery of the overall strategic objectives. So is this why you said, I think I saw one of your videos you posted uh, online or on your social media, Richard, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was something along the lines of your organization doesn't have a communication problem. You've got an understanding problem. Is, is Did I hear you right? Yeah. Again, like we, we assume that, so again, I know you've had this brief a million times and, and we do as well, that, you know, people don't understand the strategy. So um, it means we need to improve the communication process of our strategy. But actually, you can put the best, the world's greatest communication process in place. But if the messages aren't aligned, and in particular, the messages that the leaders are giving day in and day out aren't aligned, then it, it, it doesn't matter how well you communicate in terms of a process, then you're still going to get to a, a point where people don't quite understand because they're saying that's a strategic imperative and they're saying that's a strategic imperative. So when we've done the aligned work with with organizations and those who've really embraced it, one of the things that's improved dramatically is just communication in, in, in respect of people all of a sudden are getting shared messages and shared understandings of things. And again, that's both strategically and culturally. So how do teams start to o- overcome this? Some of the things that are buzzing through, through my head, I mean, going back to some of the work we used to do together and some of the thought leaders around facilitation one of the things we do often talk about is agree what important words words mean so it sounds like that that might be part of the problem but i'm wondering sort of what teams can do to to fix this but probably there's a question before that like why why do you think this misalignment comes up and this misunderstanding is it a degree of by the time we get into senior roles like doing some of the basics, like checking what important words means, almost seems a little bit, I don't know, too, too junior or like it's something that we shouldn't be spending the time on. Like what is it in your experience that's, that's driving this? Yeah, so much to unpick there. I, I think the fundamental is if we, strategy in particular. Let's start with strategy. You know, I know you, you know my journey with strategy. I avoided doing any strategy work for years. We used to turn work down because clients would come and say, hey, we want you to come and do some strategic leadership. And I'd say, oh, we don't do strategic leadership. We do inspiring leadership or we do transformational leadership. And the real reason behind that was I thought I was the only person that didn't really understand what strategy was and what strategy wasn't. And in the end, a client pretty much backed me into a corner, you know, I was going to lose a really important piece of work if we didn't integrate some strategy work into it. So I did a you know, six or eight month kind of study program to really unpick and, and get to the point where I could say, this is what I believe strategy is. And this is how we do strategy. You know, this is our strategic framework. And I read, well, actually, I part read all sorts of books. I managed to finish finish one book on strategy, but, you know, part read a whole load of them. I did a whole load of study. I went on a, a strategic leadership program at a top London business school, and I came out of that after four months. You know, I could do great SWOT analysis, but I still didn't really quite know what strategy was. Right. And it was only by pulling all of these threads together that I got to the point where I had my definition of what strategy was and what strategy wasn't. And I think that's true. In fact, I'm certain from the work we've done that that's true with a lot of leaders and a lot of organizations. We use words without really being clear on what our own definitions are of it, first of all. And then secondly, in that context, we go, oh, right, actually, well, if I'm not sure on it, but everyone else is talking about culture, for example, then I must be the only one in the room who doesn't. It's a huge leap of vulnerability then once you've reached reached a senior leadership position or even as a new leader, maybe it's even more of a leap of vulnerability as a new leader to go, hey, by the way, can I just check? Uh, This is what I mean by strategy. What do you mean by strategy? This is what I mean by culture. And that's the, you know, the, the six questions that we ask. Three of them are, what is strategy? What is culture? And what is the distinction between service and experience, you know, customer service, customer experience? Because... Uh, and again, it's 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 fascinating how different the definitions are. You know, even across those three questions, there's an assumption in the room that when we talk about culture, we mean the same thing. And often it's different different versions of a similarity, but different enough that then if we're if we're looking to kind of disseminate and engender that understanding in hundred people, a thousand people, ten thousand people, thirty thousand people, then that little difference at the top of the organization is going to mean a huge organization 
at the bottom, a, a huge difference at the bottom. So again, I think part of it is our understanding and we don't always have a, a, a total clarity on it. And then we don't therefore have the conversations with other people to say, hey, this is what I mean, what do you mean? So this is really interesting. I think this potentially links in as well to certainly what I think I mean when we talk about authentic leadership being slightly vulnerable as a leader. And it gets spoken about a lot, especially like showing a degree of vulnerability in, in leadership is quite sort of on, on vogue at the minute, right? And I come across plenty of leaders still ago, why would I want to do that, Ben? Why would I want to show any sort of vulnerability as a leader? Like, I, I'm not going to do that. Maybe because the the perception is that showing a bit of vulnerability as a leader is talking about all your woes and troubles and the things that are keeping you up at night and kind of challenges you've got at home. When that could be part of it, but equally it could be Sir Richard Branson comes to mind. I think it was when he was in his 50s, he was in a meeting and, and admitted that he didn't know what net profit was. And his the FD took him out and explained it with a really like simple fishing analogy. And he's like, oh, okay, great. I, I, I get it. So it could be, couldn't it? Just the, the leader, the MD, the CEO going, hang on, when you say strategy, Richard, like, can it be clear what exactly you're talking about? Or when we're talking about culture, can I just check? What's it, what does everyone mean when we, when we say this word? Like, that could be being a little, little bit vulnerable, right? Which I don't think we do because there is that fear expectation that because we're the MD or CEO and we're in our 40s or 50s or whatever that we should know. And if I admit that I don't or check, then what are people going to think of me? But I think that's the, the vulnerability that I think can be, can be powerful and just save so much wasted effort and confusion and miscommunication, right? Yeah, and, it, and I think it strikes the heart of something I know you're incredibly passionate about, which is, as a leader, you do not need to be the subject matter expert. Yeah. You know, and Kuzis um, and Posner distinction, again, you know, which which I know you and, and anyone who, who pays attention to this podcast know that, you know, competent as a leader is your people looking at you and going, have you got what it takes to lead us from where we are now to where we need to be? I think what a lot of people are brought up to think is that that means you have to have all of the answers. But actually, our people, I believe, our followers, if you like, our constituents, are much more likely to think we have got what it takes to lead us from where we are now to where we need to be. If we are willing to say, hey, I'm really good at this, I'm crystal clear on that, I just want to check when we talk about this, do we mean the same thing? Are we on the same page? And actually, I don't have all the answers to all of these things, but I'd like to know if you have and have we got, you know, have we got all of the answers? Can we create anything we don't know together? I, I think for some people that does feel really vulnerable, but the challenge is it's because lots of us are brought up to think we have to have all of the answers all of the time. That's not the leadership gig, right? In the end, again, the interesting thing, and I see this in business and in sport, when we're the follower, we really experience that. So when we've got a leader who comes in above us, whether it's a manager of a Premier League football club or whether it's a CEO of a big organisation or a marketing director or an HR director, whatever it is, and they act like they've got all of the answers, as a follower, we mistrust them very quickly and we almost wait for the moment that they fall over. Yeah, totally. Whereas when we get into those positions and roles, we seem to forget all of that and act in the same way that we didn't like our bosses operating in before. So that for me, there is a, there's a whole range of lessons in there for anyone who's listened to this and wants to be an even better leader. You're right. Vulnerability isn't always about, hey, this is how terrible things are at home. This is where I failed in the past. It's those moments of going, hey, I'm not sure. What do you think? Or I think I know, but what do you think? Let's share it together. And how that demonstrates that authenticity and vulnerability as a leader is it's just going to it's going to gain you more more traction from your followers in my opinion yeah and that leads me as well into thinking that the work you're doing now and, and the book and this alignment advantage is probably more relevant now than perhaps it, it's ever been because my gut feel is that maybe 20 30 years ago a leader might have got away with the fact that they might have had most of the answers mm. but I often quote the fact that the rate of technological change today, right now, as we're recording this, is the fastest it's ever been. And at exactly the same time, it's the slowest it will ever be. Yes. 
Like the world is just getting more complex every single day. So there's there's just no way that now in the world we find ourselves living, working and leading in, that as a leader, we're going to have all of the answers because it's just so much change happening. Yeah. I like just take AI and chat GPT. That has just blown the world apart in the last like almost the last month, month it seems. So there's just no way we're going to have all of the answers. So there's a slight, a slight change of mindset, I think, isn't there? That's that, Well, it's not a change of mindset because it's been going on for 20, 30 years, but just that old model just, just does not work anymore, I don't think. Yeah, and, I, and I've got a bit of, um, uh, not conflicted thinking, but I, I, think I, I think in dichotomies about this, which is, yeah, absolutely right. Things are changing at a faster pace than ever before. We're going to come across more new than ever before. You know, the, the things that have got us to where we are now as leaders or, or as managers, as subject matter experts, are, are probably not going to be the things that get us to where we need to be in 10 years' time. And at the same time, I really do believe that good, solid leadership principles that have been around for 20, 30, 40 years are good, solid leadership principles that, that are going to serve us going forward. Yeah. So this is one of the things that fascinates me about strategy. And you know I'm much more of a culture guy. I was dragged into strategy almost. But a really good, well-developed, well-thought-out, proper strategy is going to be as effective in five years as it would have been 10 years ago. Mm. The challenge is actually relatively few leaders and very relatively few organizations develop proper, solid strategies. So, so, for example, I think one of the kind of myths about strategy, one of the, the um, bits of misthinking about strategy is, and I hear this a lot in, in organizations, I know you will, we work with a lot of organizations that are incredibly fast-paced. So one of the excuses for not building proper strategy is, oh, we're too fast-paced. By the time the strategy is developed and we start, you know, disseminating it across the organization, things will have changed. Yeah, but the strategy isn't something that's set in stone forever. Even if you develop a three or a five or a 10-year strategy, you know, there's not a lot of organizations that go that far out now. One of the analogies I use is that a really good strategy becomes the anchor point for the organization's thinking and decision-making. Yeah, I love it. Now, most people, when they see ships anchored or boats anchored, the anchors are there to keep them still because they're just, you know, just off the shore. But actually, most of the time, certainly with big ships, you drop anchors to allow it a safe degree of maneuver. And that's really what a good strategy does. It allows us when a new opportunity comes along or a new threat comes along or a new bit of technology comes along, go, hey, should we be pursuing this? Does our strategy tell us that we should be doing this or shouldn't be doing it? And if the answer is no, most of the time we go, right, no, that's not what we should be doing because we're focusing strategically these other things occasionally, and this is true certainly, well, in, in a number of clients, but there's one in particular which is just growing and growing and growing by acquisition at the moment. An opportunity comes up that's probably too good to turn down. It doesn't quite fit in with the strategy right now, but it's just it wouldn't be right commercially to not do it. So that just means we alter the strategy a little bit. We do some more strategic thinking and we operate, we, we, we adjust it accordingly. So it's not a set in stone thing. Like I say, it's a, a, a safe anchor point for manoeuvre. And I think in an ever-changing world, therefore, strategy becomes even more important rather than less important. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. It reminds me when I first joined the Army when I did a week's, week's sailing course and they taught us how do you know what direction the tides go in. It's because ships have one anchor, which allows the ship to safely turn around and it will always face into the tide. It's a great, it's a brilliant analogy. And this is why... It's so important to think of our strategy and our culture together. Mm. And the disadvantage that so many people are suffering from through not, because as we're doing all of that strategic thinking, if, you know, if something comes along, which means we do need to do that kind of full turn because the tide's turned in our organization, then that means our culture probably needs to shift. Mm. The whole thing about, Culture eats strategy for breakfast, for example. You know, the quote that's attributed to Peter Drucker. I really love Drucker stuff. I think he was thinking about stuff 15, 60 years ago that's, that's still new to lots of people now. But I really had a discomfort with that, with that quote. And when I was writing the book, I actually wanted to research it properly. And the first time that that quote was actually attributed to Drucker was 2010. And sadly, Drucker died in 2006. 
So Peter Drucker never even said it. Somebody else said it and it ended up attributed to. But when we say culture eats strategy for breakfast, what it suggests is that culture is more important than strategy. You and I love Simon Sinek's stuff on lots of levels, and I still do. But the whole thing about great organizations start with why and everything else follows is a lovely concept. And I think it's I think it's true culturally, and I think it's true when it comes to things like brand. But organizationally, it's not true. Great organizations start with what? You know, and anyone who's watched his original TED Talk, Sinek cites Apple, um, you know, as having started with a purpose, and that's what makes it great. You know, we believe in challenging the status quo. We believe in doing things different. But Apple started as, you know, a couple of guys finding they can build these amazing computers and sell them, and an investor come along and go, we can make loads of money doing that. It was a commercial, you know, strategic commercial starting point. The more we can just think of strategy and culture as valuable bedfellows rather than any way at odds with each other, then it allows us to make those shifts as leaders more easily. You know, if we are a housing association, for example, that's in a fairly steady position, you know, we're not looking to grow significantly, we're not heading into a merger, then, but we want to perform really brilliantly for our end users that requires a certain type of culture. Mm -hmm. If we are a fast-growing tech organization that's looking to go from, you know, 1.5 billion a year to 3 billion a year in the next five years, that requires a very different culture. But what informs what that culture needs to be is mainly the strategic intent. Hey, quick one for you. I want to make sure that you know about my 10 for 10 leadership program. It's an online program that's totally free. It's bite-sized and it covers some of the most common leadership topics and challenges that I frequently get asked about. It's also a course that gets consistently great feedback. You can find out more by heading to the online courses page of my website at ben-morton.com. So I was going to ask you about the the, the start with why, because I know in in the book, kind of you've got a got a section on that. So following that line of thought through, if you take, I guess, the classic entrepreneur's journey. So many entrepreneurs start out; they it's not necessarily they identify a particular business that they want to build. They spot they spot a problem, right, that needs a, needs a solution, and they create a business around solving a, a problem often a, a pain point they they've experienced them themselves mm. and i can think of a, a, a number i've had on had on the show there was the founder of the solicitors firm that going through her her divorce it was just a really painful experience and customer service was terrible dealing with dealing with solicitors so she set out to create a business where it was much more supportive and and easy to go through that process there was the founder of Olio, which is a food food sharing app. So she was moving back to the UK from somewhere in Europe. R- removals were packing up her house and it come to the fridge and they went, sorry, we can't take that in the truck. We're not allowed to touch food. She went, well, what do I do with it? They went, well, you have to just bin it. And she's like, well, this, this is insane. I've got a fridge and a cupboard. I think it's just the fridge because the, like the dry goods she could just pack up. But so she just had to empty her fridge and freezer and, and bin it. So out of that she created a, a food sharing app. Whereas if you're moving house like she was or going on a holiday, you can say, hey, I've got three bananas and a pint of semi-skim milk. Whoever wants it, come and, come and collect it. In your mind, are those businesses then starting with, with what or are they starting with why? In my mind, they're starting with what? Right. I'll draw a couple of re- reference points. So throughout the Alignment Advantage book, there's a whole range of interviews with some people who I find fascinating. I think they're readers will find them really fascinating. I find them really inspiring. So there is, for example, there's Dan Rogowski, who is the VP of customer service for the viewing platform at the top of the Empire State Building. Okay. And they were um, voted on TripAdvisor as being the number one attraction of its type in the US last year. Emma Woods, who's an amazing leader, who was the CEO of Wagamama, and she led the organization through lockdowns, um, a whole range of people. And one of them is Dr. Jonathan Gander, who's one of the first strategy specialists, real academic strategy specialists that I came across. And uh, he and I don't 100% agree on this. But one of the things that, that Dr. Gander says is that you can't, you can't have a strategy if it's not solving a problem. You know, the whole point of a strategy is to solve a problem. 
So the moment you said at the very beginning of that question, they identified a problem and then created an organization to to solve that problem. That's a strategic starting point. And, uh, you know, if I take my experience, you know, for a long time when I was wrestling this as this kind of framework and methodology was emerged, and I was like, yeah, most organizations start with what? There's the odd one that starts with a purpose of why, including mine, you know, and I know, know you know this, but our kind of core belief is that leadership is the competitive advantage in business today. You take two similar organizations, it'll be the one that has the greater capability to coach, lead, motivate, inspire, lead change at all levels that'll be more successful in the long run. But that wasn't really my starting point. My real starting point was uh, I decided to move out the consultancy that I was in to set up my own consultancy. And my first uh, my first thoughts were it's going to be well, my first decisions rather were that it was going to be a leadership consultancy rather than something that did you know train the trainer, which is something I was really passionate about at the time and, and still am, and, and other stuff. But it was going to be a leadership focused consultancy. That's a strategic decision, first of all, and that I was going to I was initially going to make money on my own rather than part of the team now that decision changed quite soon after but that that they were really the first decisions and everything else emerged from that and certainly in the first example that you gave there was a decision and I think in probably all of them there's a oh I'm going to set up a business this is a way that I can solve that problem but I can I can make money doing it uh you know so I'm not saying there isn't any organization out there in the world that isn't driven by purpose, but I'm yet to really found one that genuinely started by saying they didn't have some kind of commercial or strategic decision at the beginning of it. You know, that I can make money or I can generate money or I can build a business doing this. Even in charities, certainly all the ones I've come across so far, and there will be some where this isn't the case, I'm sure. But even in charities, there's a, oh, we can make this work. Like we can get money from there and give it to there. Or even the decision of like, we're going to set this up and it's going to be a charity rather than a business or rather than a, you know, a CIC or something like that. Is it, that's a strategic decision right at the very beginning. And all the cultural stuff tends to come on the back of that to make it work. Even think about Patagonia, actually, who widely get get cited, kind of right when you're talking about this this sort of stuff. So they are arguably one of the companies in the world that probably has the biggest environmental social responsibility drivers. But again, I've done quite a lot of reading around Patagonia lately. A few guests on the podcast have done interviews with Yvonne Chouinard, who who founded it. Patagonia didn't start out with with, with, with why it started out with. Yvonne was a climber, wanted to go climbing and like started building his own own climbing kit. It, it, eventually, he realized that like, he cared about the environment and that the, the pitons, the little metal arrows that you, climbers would typically bang into the rocks were, were damaging the rocks. So he created something something different. But the real shift came, came years later when him and his leadership team were basically did a a week's retreat to Patagonia. And that was when really they they pivoted and said, everything we now do is going to be about sustainability. But like, did they start with why? No, he started because he wanted, wanted to go climbing and he couldn't afford to buy kit, really. Yeah, and, and that is, and I, it's really important for us to say at this point, the whole basis, the whole advantage of this way of thinking is to align strategy, culture and customer experience. So I don't want to sound like I'm saying, that I don't think purpose is a good thing, that we shouldn't have, you know, a really strong culture or, or you know, we shouldn't pay attention to really SG stuff or anything like that. But what I'm saying is this idea that start with why everything's got to be purpose driven and everything falls out of that. It just isn't, it's unhelpful the moment we put one of these things above the other. And actually culture is the pivot, right? And this is me just making sure that people get that I'm really passionate about culture. It's not them putting strategy ahead of it. You know, the strategy conversation, I think, has to come first because we need to know what our strategic goals are, strategic objectives are, in order to know what the culture is we're looking to shift to or create. Because our culture has to be developed to be a strategic enabler. If our culture isn't a strategic enabler, it's a strategic blocker. If it's not helping us to deliver what we need to deliver, it is getting in the way of it. So another question that we ask in this out of the six, which is is possibly the one at the moment, again, I get more, more I look forward to hearing the answers to most. So we ask a question, 
we've asked, what is strategy? What are your key strategic objectives? What is culture? And then we ask, on a scale of one to six, to what degree does your current culture support the delivery of your strategic objectives? So we're uncovering, first of all, is the culture right? And that isn't, is it nice? But it's, is it helping you to deliver what you need to deliver? And if anybody is at a four or less, and it's certainly in a senior team, but pretty much in any team, then that shows we need to do some cultural work. However, what it also uncovers is, if you haven't got a clear aligned answer to number two, then you can't be clear on your answer to number four. So again, we work with this big global tech game in business. We worked with the leadership team from the biggest part of that business. And we asked these questions, there was 21 people in the room. And when, it, when we looked at the answer to that question, number four, to what degree does your current culture support the delivery of your strategic objectives? There was one person marked at a four and everybody else was at fives or sixes. Amazing. But what we'd found in the answer to number two was there were 21 people in the room and there was about 20, 19 or 20 different answers to what the key strategic objectives were. So what that began to uncover was there was a really nice culture. They got on really well. It was really supportive. It was, the social stuff was amazing. But actually, they were in a part of the business. That was They were being driven and driven and driven by their internal stakeholders. And what they found, and this didn't come from me, what, what they started to realize was actually the culture was almost a bit too nice. They didn't engender the degree of conflict they required to make the decisions, you know, that they needed to as a senior team. They, they did need to be a bit more driven, that the balance needed to shift a little bit culturally in order to deliver what needed to be delivered in the timeframes they needed to deliver it. So your culture is both is a strategic enabler, has to be built to be a strategic enabler, but also your customer experience cannot outperform your employee experience for any prolonged period of time. Therefore, your culture also has to be shaped in order to deliver the experiences that you want to deliver for your customers, your guests, your visitors, for your clients. So for all, you know, lots of the stuff we've talked about so far in here is like, you know, strategy first, we've got to get the strategy right. That's not because I don't think culture is important. It's equally as important. It really is the pivot between strategy and, and customer. And that's why the alignment piece is so important. So that's interesting. That's the first time we've touched on on customer experience there. So what are you saying there? I guess that if you want to deliver an amazing customer experience, you've got to make sure that, <laughs> you use your, your language here, you've got to make sure that clearly your culture that you have internally for your employees is is similar and, and, and aligned or at the very least that it's not gonna gonna jar where you've got your employees going hey you, you're asking me to behave like this and kind of d- delight kind of customers when they come in but where am I getting delighted as a as an employee 100 percent, 100 and look if an organization doesn't want to create really great customer experiences that's okay with me. You know, I'm not sure that petrol stations, for example, gas stations, if people are in the US, like need to do customer experience really brilliantly. Be nice to have clean pumps that work fast and not have to queue too much. I suppose their experiences, but fundamentally it's quite transactional. Mm. But if you're an organization that wants your customers to experience you distinctly from your competition, then that requires cultural backup. Yeah. So again, that's why we the first question you know we ask about experience in organisations is what is the distinction between service and experience? And again, we check around the table to make sure there is a, a an aligned understanding of that distinction. And that allows us to get into actually, do you want to be an experience business? You know, do you want to just be a service business? Because I don't see, I don't think service and experience are, uh, they're not different points on the same line. Service, customer service and customer experience, guest service, guest experience are different things. They're not the same things. You know, part of my background, as you know, is in contact centers. And that's a, a great example of an environment where you can increase the customer service and get in the way of the customer experience. Yeah. You know, anyone who's ever been on a call center, phone to the call center, not had their challenge resolved. And then at the end, the advisor says, is there anything else I can help you with? 
knows, you know, that's good customer service because they've asked the question they need to ask according to the, you know, the guidelines that they're given. But it decreases the guest ex- the customer experience rather. So mm-hmm. do we want to be a service organization or an experience organization? If we want to be an experience organization, have we as a leadership team and throughout the organization, do we have an aligned view on what the distinction is, what we're shooting for? And then what is our X? So when we when we talk about aligned uh, in our organization, we talk about the S for strategy, we talk about the C for culture, and we talk about the X. And the X is really the whole external experience. So the X is customer experience plus brand in its, in its purest essence. You know, that whole thing about it's what we do and what customers feel about what we do, what our reputation is, you know, what's created visceral for those people who who look into us, you know, when people experience our brand, you know, our branding, you know, our, our company name or our products or our service. So brand in its purest essence plus experience go together to make the X. And again, it would really shock most people watching or listening to this if they could see the amount of times we've gone into really customer-facing organizations and ask them, what is your X? If I'm your customer, if I'm your guest, if I'm your visitor, if I'm a client, what is the experience that you want me to have of your organization? And inherent in there should be some degree of distinction between you and your competition. Mm. Can't tell you how many people give different answers around the table when I ask that question. And the ones that don't, the ones that are aligned in that answer are typically the ones who are outstanding guest experience. Mm. Listen to you talking there as well about the link between customer experience and sort of culture, employee experience. Reminds me of my first job when I left the army, which was a um, World Challenge Youth Expedition Company. And a couple of years in, we got acquired by Tui Travel. I think yeah. I don't know if they still are back then, where they was Europe's, if not the world's largest travel company. And we were, went into what they called the the activity sector. And the sort of our divisional MD, he had this phrase, which is probably slightly showing sort of my age, probably more his age than mine. But he always have this phrase that he'd say. If it touches the customer, it's tutti frutti. If it touches employees, it, it's vanilla. Oh, interesting. And like on the one hand, you can go, oh, yeah, you, you, you kind of get the analogy. It's a useful analogy. And like Amazon is is probably the same. Some of the early Amazon stories you hear, whether they're, they're true or just sort of um, like a, a myth, who knows. But like going into Amazon in the early days, like you'd get an old wooden door with splinters on it and you had to build your own desk out of it because it was all about putting money into to, to building the platform. But they're, they're two different examples, right? If you buy from, from Amazon, which I do a lot, what, what do I really want? Well, I want speed and I want to be able to send whatever I bought back if, it, if it's not right. Like beyond that, like I, I don't really want a great deal of service. I don't really care about the, the experience. I don't really care if the delivery driver is friendly or rude, as long as he doesn't mm. damage the thing when he throws it on my doorstep. Yeah. But if I'm going on holiday, I, I, I want an, an amazing experience. And to, to your point, if I see guests and customers are getting tutti-frutti, but I'm getting vanilla at best as an employee, like there is a bit of a, a, bit of a disconnect there, right? Like how willing am I going to be to go the extra mile to – like delight kind of customers if if I'm getting a bit of a bum deal as, a, as an employee. It's it's really interesting. Totally. And there's some of the organizations I've worked with over the years where there's a degree of currency either in, either in the sector or in the brand where employees will work really hard. They'll put up with stuff culturally and still deliver for the, for the customer for a period of time. But it can't last... You know, one of my favorite parts of the book is when I was interviewing Emma Woods, their main customer measure at Wagamama was NPS. Yeah. And for a while, their main employee measure was ENPS. So to your point, clarify what important words mean. Okay. NPS, net, net promoter score. What was the other one? ENPS is employee net promoter score. Okay, cool. So it's the same, it's the same kind of methodology, but measuring you know, how, you, how you'd recommend internally, if you like. Yeah. And they got to the point where if they noticed ENPS dropping in a restaurant or a particular cluster, they had six weeks to fix it before 
customer NPS would start dropping. Wow, that's really powerful data, isn't it? Yeah, measures were so well honed. Their systems were so well honed in measuring that. So they do have a direct impact. And, and actually, Amazon is one of the examples I use of an, an aligned organization. And I don't work with Amazon. They're not a client. But, you know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm you know, sharing the aligned framework, somebody will say, yeah, but what about something like Amazon, which is really successful? But actually, everyone knows culturally it's, you know, it's really driven and people can go and work there and sometimes burn out, et cetera. Again, I am much less, sounds dreadful, I'm much less interested in whether people, places are a great place to work, whether it's a nice place to work. I hope they are, but more are they aligned. So I don't know what Amazon's strategy is, but I suspect its strategic intent is probably something like take over the world. You know, it'll be something. <laughs> That's just what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, it'll be something, you know, fairly um, behaggy like that. And then if you go at the other end of the scale, where you're right, um, it, we, we talk about different versions of customer experience, different ways you can build customer loyalty. So you've got things like creating wow moments. You've got consistency. You've got ease. Um, you've got personalization. So what we really want as Amazon customers, the reason most people use Amazon so frequently is it's really easy. It's only a couple of clicks. And if I click to say get the thing, if I click and it says I'll get the thing tomorrow, I'll typically get the thing tomorrow, right? That's why we use it. Yeah, consistency, right? So that's why customers are using it and we want to take over the world. The culture, you know, the culture's got to be driving. It's got to be driven. And again, when yeah. I've spoken to people, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that I think Amazon's negative in any way, shape or form. But when I've spoken to people who worked at Amazon, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, there is, there is a, a sense of a burnout culture, you know, I worked there for two, one guy in particular said, I worked there for two and a half years. It was amazing, but that was like, I was done at that point. And I think, I think that's kind of relatively acknowledged. I think if you get past kind of five years at Amazon, you're probably going to be a lifer, you know? Mm. But if it was anything other than that kind of incredibly driven culture, we wouldn't always get things the next day and they wouldn't be able to, you know, I'm sure realize whatever their strategic intent really is. Yeah, totally. Richard, this has been amazing. I've not seen the book yet based on chatting to you today. I can't wait to, to get a copy in my hands and, and, and dig into it, and especially some more of the more of the case studies. Before we wrap up, though, I've got a, a couple of regular quickfire questions I always love to ask guests. Um, the first of which, what would you say is the one book that has had the, the greatest impact upon you? Or the other way I frequently ask this question is, what is the the one book that you frequently find yourself recommending to other people? I'm allowed to have two. Yes. My favourite leadership book of all time, the best leadership book of all time, in my opinion, is The Leadership Challenge. Right, That's why Jim's been on your show twice. That leadership research that they do for me is the most valuable because they're asking what makes followers follow leaders rather than you know, what did Obama do or Jobs do or Bezos do or whatever. So, you know, my number one most recommended leadership book by far. Probably the book that changed my life as much as anything was, was a book called Accelerated Learning for the 21st Century by Colin Rose. So when I was at the beginning of my journey uh, and understand Accelerated Learning and Brain-Friendly Learning, which is one of our real, you know, distinctions now we create different experiences for our clients. You know, that that book, I remember reading it around the pool in, Falaraki in in 2000 I think it probably was 2001 maybe 1999 it would have been that was life-changing so uh, an old book but leadership book leadership challenge by far cool and what would you say is the one item that if it were to be lost stolen or broken you'd immediately find yourself going out to replace other than your mobile phone I'd love to say something really profound um I left my laptop on a plane about uh, three weeks ago, a month ago, and it took me seven days to get it back. And that was really challenging. That was really challenging. So, yeah, my laptop helps me, you know, helps me to be able to work from home and be around my kids more and all of those kind of things. So it, it, would, it would be tech. It would be my laptop. Cool. And final question, Richard. Um, really interested to, to hear your answer on this one, actually, especially bearing in mind the, the research and the journey you've been on with the book. Um, but what do you think are three key traits for leaders who are leading right now, today, in the current world we find ourselves in? 
Yeah, you know, I'll start with Jim and Barry's research. Like the number one thing that makes followers follow leaders with energy, enthusiasm, making followers walk through walls for you is 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 that congruence, authenticity. Your followers must see that you do what you say on the tin. And again, I'm conscious that works really well in the UK. It doesn't work anywhere else in the world. So just for anyone who's in the US, for example, <laughs> there was a there was a, a varnish and wood stain company called Ron Seal. And for years, their uh, their tagline on their advertising was, yeah, Ron Seal Woodstein does exactly what it says on the tin. Like, our leaders must look at us and think that what we see is what we get, that you deliver on your promises, and they must know what you stand for and see that every day. And, and the challenge is, most of us have never asked ourselves, what do we stand for as leaders? Mm. And until we, we think we do, we think we're congruent, authentic, honest, all of that. But until we're clear on what we stand for then we can't be sure so i think that's the number one thing i think right now and, and, and i know there's been so much talk about pandemics and post pandemics but you and i you know i know you've done a, done an episode about this you and i talk about this i think leaders ability to take care of themselves energy wise and well-being wise and therefore mm. give their people permission to do the same is more important now than pretty much ever before maybe it was more important three years ago but like i i'm still seeing so many people in organizations now who are who are living in the backwash of everything that went on around covid so i think it is vital and if we don't do it now if we're at the stage where we aren't taking care of ourselves now and aren't taking care of our people now either we're going to burn out and fall over or our good people will just leave and do something else so they'd probably be the top two if I was going to choose a third, I love the stuff about purpose, right? Despite some of the things that, that, that you know, I've pointed to about where it comes in the priority. But as part of a cultural narrative, things like purpose and mission are really important. However, I think that thirst for purpose has come at the detriment of vision. And pre this drive for purpose-led organizations, vision was a critical, you know, part of the cultural narrative and what people bought into in a and I think it's unfortunate that it's been pushed to the side. Mm. So I think leaders should be visionary. And by that, I just mean be really good at creating inspiring visions because people get certainty from looking into the future and having something to go. I don't know how we're going to get there, that aspirational picture of the future. I don't know how we're going to get there, but I would really love to be part of it, making a part of making it happen. So I would love love leaders to be, you know, even better creating and engaging their people in in visions. Amazing, Richard. Thank you so much for for your time today. It's been an amazing com- conversation, as I think we both knew knew it would be. But thank you so much. Best of luck with the book. In fact, tell us when is the official release date? In the UK, it is out on the third of June. Cool. Uh, so you can order it on Amazon now. You can order it through Kogan Page now, and all your all your usual good uh, retailers in the US. I think it's actually out on I think the twenty seventh of June, uh, but again, still available for pre order. Amazing. We will pop the link in the show notes for listeners, so you can just go straight there and click on it and grab a grab a copy right now. Richard, thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, folks. I told you it was a cracker of an episode and I'd love to know what you thought of it and which bits resonated with you and maybe what you're going to go away and do differently as a result. So do connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership or drop me a message via the feedback link in the show notes. And whilst you're down looking at the show notes, do remember to enter the competition competition, sorry, to win the books that are going to be appearing on this season of the show. And then finally, before you go, I've got one small request of you that'll take just a couple of minutes. Please can you rate and review the show wherever you happen to be listening. It really does help us keep producing the show and it really means a lot to me personally. That's it for this episode, folks. Look after yourself. Look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead. And above all else, lead on. <laughs>